0: Hey, this is The Moment of Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is a real treat for me. Um, I often have people on here who I'm friends with, uh, but Glenn Kenny, my guest today, is someone who has been a dear friend since uh, 1997. Uh, and, um, and that's a long time ago. In fact, Glenn and I met before, uh, while we were shooting Rounders, long before it came out, uh, he did a set visit when he was the, uh, a, a writer for Premier Magazine. He was also the chief film critic for Premier Magazine, but he did a feature on the film. Uh, I had a healthy uh, skepticism about journalists. Glenn won me over very quickly, uh, and we immediately moved from a sort of professional relationship to uh, a real friendship. Uh, we've been at each other's family events. I was at his uh, wedding, and um, he is a great writer, one of the smartest people that I know. And he has a new book out called Made Men, which is the story of the making of Goodfellas. It is a, a book I read at the beginning of pandemic in galley form. And as I told Glenn, it, it really was just so diverting and was able to take my mind off of uh, uh, what we were all dealing with. And I got to become completely immersed again in one of my favorite movies. And how and why it was made and uh so glenn kenny i'm thrilled that you're doing oh brian me.
1: it was it's it's such a great uh thing for me to be on this podcast i've listened to for such a long time and and having known you for as long as i have and and thank you i really appreciate your support of the book despite the fact that i didn't know that like pandemic reading would be part of my marketing hook when I embarked <laughs> on it, um, but you know, and uh, as your writing partner David Levine will tell you about uh, book marketing, uh, whatever works. So um, you know, yeah, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to talk to you about this project and and pretty much anything else. I remember very well coming to the Rounders set for the first time. Um, it was dis- the scene being shot was a discussion of cigars. The robusto the robusto cigar and then the second time Ah. i came to the rounder set was in 98 and i had just spent a weekend in vegas with david foster wallace as one does and um yes that was i think that's when we uh we really started hitting it off because you and david wanted to hear all about that um Wait, wait, the first time was in Atlantic City or the, the second time? The first time was, was in City? New York. The second time was in Atlantic City. I remember it very well because I did something incredibly stupid, which was kind of a pattern in my life at the time, which was I, I rented a car. I drove to Atlantic City. I stayed up all night with you guys, with you and David and Edward Norton and Matt Damon and John Dahl until seven in the morning. And then instead of staying at the was it the TROP or the Taj? It was yeah, the trop.
0: we were at the Staying we at the, staying we at the, at the th-
1: TROP like a normal person, I was going to drive home that morning, which I did. And then I went. I had to see Cape Man that evening with my father and his wife, which is a very rare occurrence. I mean, seeing my father. Um, yes. Wait, weren't we? Um, I don't want to get lost
0: on this, but I think we were at a Trump um, Sadly, weren't we at a Trump? You might right have now? been at
1: the Taj, yeah. I forget. If it I was think the, we were yeah, at the Taj, yeah, man. Yeah, I think that's yeah. the
0: thing. All right. So um, I want to get into talking about the book and I want to talk about your life too a little bit. Glenn, I want to talk about your own redemption <laughs> story, even though this movie is not a redemption story, but I do because Goodfellas is, you know, I, I, I'll be honest. I want to help you sell books on this thing and I want to talk about you. But the truth is, I don't feel like I have to sell you to get people to buy the book. The book is so fucking excellent. And for people listening to this podcast, the, the, Goodfellas is such a crucial movie in my own life, you know, as 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 I th- I'm sure I've told you, you know, David and I saw that movie like the weekend it came out or the next weekend. Um, I think the weekend it came out. And it was such a jarring experience. And I've thought about it this way a lot. And I want to start by asking you this, like in a certain way, I remember even the night I saw it. And you talk a lot of in the book about the way people received it initially and how it's been received over time its popularity, the differences, the way people felt its marketability, all that stuff. Even the way the font, even the way that the the thing is written, good fellas. Um, But I remember even the night I saw it, in some way it felt to me like an antidote to The Godfather. Mm -hmm. Like when you first watched it, before the guys became familiar to you, right now people watch it again and we can sort of all sing along. And so it's, 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 Uh, become a bit toothless in certain ways. But uh, do you think, how do we get people to understand or how did you want to get people to understand in a post-Sopranos world how subversive the movie's take on these guys uh,
1: is? Uh, Yeah, that is a great question because the movie is still, people I think almost willfully persist in misunderstanding the movie even though, everything that can be said about the movie's morality is right up front from, from, from almost the very beginning, which is that this is not a cautionary tale in the classical sense of having a representative come out at the end and say, you know, kids, you shouldn't do this. But I think the phrase I use in the book is that, you know, despite the, the fact that these characters are kind of ingratiating to the viewer. And this was something that Scorsese himself wanted to inquire about in the film, his own experience of gangster movies and these kind of morally repellent characters. But why did he and his friend Jay Cox like them so much? Not just because the filmmakers are trying to make you like them, but what is the inherent appeal? But the other dynamic that's always at work in Goodfellas is that you can get off the bus with these Guys, anytime you want, because they give you plenty of opportunities. From the the first scene of Henry Hill as an adult, as him and Tommy D Simone setting up this uh, truck heist scheme that depends on its credibility uh, f- by blaming Black African Americans for the crime that they're actually committing, and um, this is you know.
0: And, yeah, and, using, and, and, and using the yeah, N-word, yeah, actually. Very repellent
1: over. kind of thing that they just do in a very cavalier way and shrug it off. Whatever is expedient for them is good. And this, in a way, is actually kind of a mini history in, in less than a minute and a half, that one scene of, of, you know, of, of race relations in New York City specifically, where the, the crime is always blamed on, on, on the Blacks. And you know you have these Italian Americans who it's it's examined to a certain extent in gangs of New York, you know, were themselves a loathed uh, race, uh, ethnic class in the United States in the 19th century, but they were still at least a couple of rungs up ahead of African Americans. Right.
0: I mean, you know, imagine th- when 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 Tommy says, "Imagine that a Jew brought afraid of to date an Italian." Right.
1: He's giving you both sides of that right there in, in that later moment in the film. Right? And, and as a half Italian American myself, I can I can attest to the fact that Italian Americans uh, always have a very finely honed sense of grievance about pretty much you know anything you could imagine. So you know there is that sense too. But you know what they do is what they do, and it's often not just morally repellent, but you know repellent from the point of view of, of what's acceptable in people's personalities, not just nowadays, but, but then, you know, um, my parents taught me from a very early age that that kind of language was, was unacceptable. And they were both, you know, very working class people from Italian family and Irish American family, respectively from Fort Lee. They were, they were a little more enlightened than a lot of other people in their, in their, um, in their class group and so on, their peer group and so on, but they were, and you know, this sort of talk and this sort of way of looking at uh, other races was uh, was not, you know, was frowned upon by them. By the same token, I think you understand just as well as I do. Um, growing up in the, I grew up in the '60s and '70s, and you grew up in the '70s and '80s, and. You know, there's a point as a child where you're not really aware of the fact that you're living in uh, an area that's incredibly segregated. You know, um, you just think this is the way things are. And it's only in your adult years if you're sufficiently uh, willing to explore these things that you find out, well, this is, you know, this is the extent to which you were kind of coddled about a lot of things. Um, But these guys weren't. You know, these guys in their class, they were, you know, enforcing the segregation. I have a a sentence in the book talking about John Gotti's reign in Ozone Park and then how in the neighborhoods that he controlled, he'd have his goons, you know, chase any African-American who walked on a certain block right the hell out of there. So it's a constant of that life.
0: Yes. Well, well, and and it's clear in the way they talk about stacks and and all that stuff. how I mean, the racism and, the, and the, obviously the Nat King Cole scene, and there's tons of sort of, uh, you, can, you can understand how racist they are. But which speaks to, you know, when you say Scorsese is fascinated by why he likes these guys. You know, I've, I've read many interviews with Marty, some you've conducted, where he talks about that he doesn't think they're animals, that, that, that he wants to show you that in their, from their point of view, they're not. Yet the movie does clearly depict to me That they're one hunt to me anyway, even the most sympathetic, even Maury is a wretched and horrible human. being, And uh, a thief and a liar and uh, a rat and a weasel. And 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 he's the character you're supposed to feel some sympathy for. And so I would ask you, like, what do you think Mar- Marty's aims are, really? Like, because you know, an artist is going to say something, especially an artist who grew up around these guys, and then an artist is going to do something else. And 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 I'm I'm wondering, and then I want to talk to you about Peleggi's motives, which are different. But what do you think Marty's intending to do here with this with this film? Which to me, the closest cousin to it is Wolf of Wall Street in a certain yeah.
1: Way. I agree with that. Um, I think, and 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 in Wolf of Wall Street, Marty is uh, Scorsese is even more detached, and at the same time, more I won't say indulgent, but more but less uh, overtly judgmental. I think I think there's something interesting going on in Goodfellas in that it's a film that, in a lot of ways, is not hugely personal for Scorsese, but the thing that is personal about it has to do with his. The environment in which he grew up, the early shot of young Henry Hill looking out that out of his window at the at the cab stand and the pizza parlor run by Tutti Cicero, um, that that boy is Marty Scorsese on Elizabeth Street, sickly, not able to go outside, uh, can't really participate in sports. That was kind of the the insular necessary environment in which he nurtured his cinephilia. So there is that kind of outsider's fascination with these high living people and that I think drives a lot of the period detail in the movie uh, when they did the copa shot the main thing one of the one of the biggest things he was concerned about was getting it right when the waiters ran out onto the show floor and and put the tables down for the wise guys because that was yes. something from his own personal recollection so there is that there's the, there's the personal dimension of his own kind of memory play aspect going on in the movie. But there is also a provocation and a social commentary. And he said to um, Richard Schickel in uh, the book Conversations with Scorsese, he said, you know, I want the audience to look at Goodfellas and get mad. I want them to sit there and hear Henry Hill go on about them being the suckers, and I want them to get mad. Um, That was the aim of the provocation. But, you know, um, that didn't quite work. And and I think it didn't quite work, not because Scorsese did it wrong. I think it didn't quite work because there's something in American society that uh, some people like being taken for suckers in a certain way. This is where we get to Donald Trump, you know. why aren't you mad, Donald? It's clear that Donald Trump despises working people. It's been made manifest how much he hates them. Yeah, but he's Donald Trump. He gets to despise working people, and that's the uh, that's the hook with Henry too. But but of, clor- of course, the closest analog to Trump in the
0: movie is the the the, the neighbor of Karen's who tries to take advantage of him. Yeah,
1: well, that's a, that's a certain dimension of it for sure. The uh, the, uh, the the um, the the grabber Bruce who gets uh, who, yes. yeah who gets hit uh, pistol whipped by uh, by Henry but the whole yes and my one my one copy edit of the book
0: yes you did say that is in yeah. that scene I copy edited that by by correcting fucker to fucker that is correct very yes. happy to have known the movie that well I took
1: a, a, a great joy in, in that being fucked and 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 you were absolutely right thank you for that. Uh, I'm an old man. My hearing may not be what it used to be. Actually. Once once I I listened to it over again, it it came out right. It was just one of those things that you sort of reflexively, uh, of course
0: I, I just, as a dialogue writer, you know, it's so funny. That's uh, the other thing is like, you know, you can't, you can't overstate the influence Goodfellas had on people who write dialogue for a living. And, um, so for me, even as a kid, before I was writing dialogue at 22, I paid attention to Fucko. Do you know what I mean? Because it was an mm-hmm. insult I hadn't mm-hmm. exactly yeah, heard. Yeah, yeah. You, you cherish so,
1: those. You put them in a in a treasure box. That's correct.
0: Yeah. They 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 get. That's just the way my brain works. I capture. I I held that thing for years to repurpose. You know. Um. So so I want to go back to the subversive nature of it, though, because what I remember being in the theater, Glenn, in its opening run. I'm talking about. Is that I think in its opening run, perhaps America was different than it is now. Because what I remember in the audience was total
1: shock and a sense
0: that they were repulsed. Yeah. Is that not what the stories coming back were?
1: Well, certainly during the previews of the film that were done in California, and certainly... But on the other hand, in New York, uh, Russell Baker, who was a New York Times columnist who generally did kind of lighter op-ed pieces uh, social observations. There's a piece by Russell Baker that I quote in the book where he's sitting there and he's having the reaction you're talking about. He's shocked and repulsed by these characters, but he's also very put off because a lot of the people in the audience are laughing and not just at the laugh lines. They're laughing at, you know, um, you know, robbing Kennedy Airport Brilliant. was better than Citibank and, and that kind of thing. So you know, I think different pockets of America were differently configured, but there was a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot. This is the paradox of making this kind of movie. You know, Goodfellas is a, a studio film. And Scorsese is, as Erwin Winkler has said, the, the greatest American independent filmmaker who's never really made an independent film. And just as with Taxi Driver, huh. you have these very attractive people, these movie star charisma people playing these low lowlifes, and that's another dynamic that makes the moral ambiguity uh, more difficult yes. on a perceptual level. And it's the same kind of dynamic that made it difficult when you made a film like Public Enemy with Jimmy Cagney. You know what I'm saying? So, but he knowingly plays into that. When Manny Farber wrote about Taxi Driver, he was um, appalled. Manny Farber and Patricia Patterson wrote about Taxi Driver. They were appalled by... De Niro as Travis Bickle. They thought the film was trying to have it both ways, failing to recognize that this was a sort of a time-honored Hollywood convention that Farber himself had, you know, in a lot of ways given approval to in his earlier criticism. But that too is part of what makes it, um, I think, to me, it makes it rich. To other people it makes it confusing or... Well, I, 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 wonder, I wonder, Glenn, if part of what... It, it,
0: it's all, It's the actors... But I'm thinking of the scene at the at the at the bar at the Bamboo Lounge when when um, uh, when they make the deal with Frenchie mm-hmm. and that shot uh, that 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 zoom push on. I think it's a zoom push. It might just be a push on on De Niro with the cigarette and he stubs it out. And it's like it, instead of it being one long shot, right, there's that zoom push on, on, on De Niro and then boom, you cut to him a moving camera again, moving in on on Frenchy uh, as they sit down to have that conversation. And it's sort of like you or, or to me it feels like as an audience member, you're adrenalized because you're on the inside and part of the crew now. They're talking in shorthand, it's the commandant, it's the whole thing. and you're suddenly put, even though they're repulsive repellent people, you are put because of the um, uh, because of the the way in which the camera, the lens choice, the music, is moving you in with them suddenly you are them and it's that bonding with that the experience I think that twists us around a bit am I Am I on to something? Oh, you absolutely
1: are. I mean, it's the immediacy. And the reason Scorsese wanted to make the film in the first place was because this was the first time a credible portrait of mob life from the point of view of a foot soldier. So, you know, you don't have this kind of nobility of being the puppet master as in Vito Corleone and The Godfather. You're the guy, Do you're Clemenza, only you're thinner. You know, you're the guy doing the crimes. And so... He wants you to have that immediacy. He wants the "you are there" feeling that he got at the time from TV docudramas and the series "The Untouchables" with Robert Stack. And yeah, that shot of um, of of the of the plan, you know, formulating—that's a zoom push. But he's also um, under cranking the camera, so there's a, just a little bit of fast motion. So when yes. De Niro gets up and starts going towards Frenchie, there's that you know, accelerated, uh, you know, pulse, uh, pulse quickening thing happening. And that also speaks to Jimmy Conway's character because he's the one who's always looking for the big score, the big score, the big score, not the big score and get out, but just the big scores. He loves, he loved to steal as Henry Hill points out in the narration. And the more he could steal the better and the more ostentatiously he could steal the better. So yeah, all those feelings are there. You you are supposed to get the illicit thrill of using Kennedy Airport as your personal ATM, for sure, for sure.
0: It's funny when you think about Wolf of Wall Street, what you said about Scorsese having more distance. You know, I thought the people who felt Wolf of Wall Street glor- glorified Uh, The world it was depicting. I really feel like that's uh, an invalid opinion. That is a misreading of the movie. Whereas I, I think in Goodfellas, it's more of a problem to tease out where the authorial intent is in depicting this question.
1: Well, crime is exhilarating or it can be exhilarating for a person of a certain type. I mean, I quote the the, um, epigraph at the beginning of my book is a quote from Jean Genet, the uh, criminal and thief turned uh, writer whose books are hymns to crime. You know, they're hymns to immorality. And they, you know, while they achieve a certain political dimension over time, the initial books were not even you know, they had a philosophical perspective, but they weren't even talking about, you know, it's great to steal because you're screwing the capitalist system. It's just, it's great to steal. It feels good. You know, it's exhilarating.
0: Well, well, this is great. Okay. This is a great thing. So the Godfather posits, uh, the Pesanavantes are criminals in their world. They uh, the 90 calibers, they uh, control us like uh, puppets on the end of a string. And uh, it, in fact, people like us uh, have no recourse. I mean, that's sort of said in Goodfellas, but in a different way. In Goodfellas, it's about among the criminals. But in The Godfather, it's the establishment have left us to survive in unsurvivable waters. And so we're going to do whatever we have to do. And there's honor in in grabbing a hold of this and protecting those around me by whatever means necessary. There's honor, and I think that was the prevailing notion in America about a certain kind of gangster from 1972 until 1989. Yeah. And uh, and I think that Goodfellas changed it 180 degrees. Can you talk about that though? About about the thematic differences and 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 whether you think. I've really never heard of Scorsese talk about
1: the Godfather. And
0: so how do you think he grappled with it or was he
1: grappling with it at all? Well, I think that they are two different worlds. And I think certainly Scorsese, I mean, Scorsese and Coppola, they're not, they aren't super close friends the way that Coppola and George Lucas are, but they certainly have a lot of admiration for each other. They certainly have a lot in common. Coppola cast uh, Marty's beloved mother, Catherine. In uh, one of the Godfather films, Um, they hold each other in very high regard. And I think, I don't think of Goodfellas as an answer film to the Godfather films. I think maybe if Scorsese considers Goodfellas relative to the Godfather, it's on a continuum. But I don't think the morality in either film or the perspectives on morality are all that different because... Coppola is very, very careful. You know, there's a uh, people. People misinterpret a lot of what goes on in The Godfather. They think, well, that um, Don Corleone is noble because he won't get involved in the narcotics business. That's absolutely not true. If you watch the film and you listen to it, Don Corleone takes the stance of nobility when he's explaining himself. But when he does explain himself, he does it in the he does it in the terms of self-interest. Now, arguably it's an enlightened self-interest, but it is still self-interest. He says, no, I don't want to get involved in narcotics because I cannot afford to alienate the people. Yeah. The politicians in my pocket would react differently.
0: Yes. But, but I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to have to pick you up a little on this. In my own opinion, uh, that first scene, the first series of scenes where he, um, is disappointed in Santino that Santino is is not faithful to his 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 wife. The god the don is faithful to his wife. The don also refuses to murder when uh when nobody's been murdered. He won't do the revenge murder because it's not justice. And and I think Coppola does not I don't believe that Coppola is telling us the don's lying in those scenes. Those initial scenes, Michael's a different story. But but how
1: do you or how do you read those moments differently than no, I? No, I don't think the Don is lying at all. The Don is a common sense kind of criminal, but I do not think he, he is noble either. The the difference between the world of Don Corleone and the world of Goodfellas, I think, can be broken down to very simple anton and an- antonymies. Which is Don Corleone is interested in maintaining order because he has his empire, he has his home. At the beginning of The Godfather, everything's pretty good. He has his home. His sons are alive and thriving. His youngest son is on track for the kind of straight life career that he's hoping to forge for him. That's the beginning of The Godfather, and, and all this is great. It's all good for him. So he's interested in maintaining that order, and the things that happen in the first part of The Godfather show how that order comes apart. And it's not necessarily through his actions or through his short sightedness, although arguably, had he, you know, had he deigned to cooperate more with Salazzo right off the bat, none of this would have happened. But we can't deal in hypotheticals here. But The Godfather, Corleone is interested in order, and The Godfather is about how order falls apart and godfather part two is about how order is restored at the cost of michael corleone's soul and goodfellas is about anarchy right goodfellas is about criminal anarchy and that is a big difference goodfellas is about dad not finding out that you're doing whatever the hell you want whenever you want it because half the stuff no not even half the stuff three quarters of the stuff that they're doing after the kennedy heist the Air France heist where they pay Paulie his tribute, then they yes. kind of get off, um, run off the farm to a certain extent and just start doing whatever the hell they want to. And that's what Goodfellas is about. It's about the anarchy of 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 these criminalized types and also the decadence that comes when they start, when the narcotics, they don't, what happens with narcotics in this film isn't what Don Corleone predicted in The Godfather. What happens is These guys start getting high on their own supply. They become dependent on certain things, and that makes them vulnerable. Still the same result.
0: In a a certain way, and you talk about this uh, in the book so well, but, you know, in terms of the different, you know, you separate it out. You talk about the screenplay. You talk about the making of it. You talk about the editing of it. You talk about the marketing of it. But the screenplay is so non-traditional to me. You know, the 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 whole jail sequence, which is incredible, really doesn't move the plot forward at all. Um, you could could without showing any of that, show us that that in prison um, Henry makes a drug connection, right? Mm-hmm. And and so why do you think he? Uh, what do you make of, you know, which a lot of people's favorite sequences because it's more of the
1: romantic part
0: of the movie. What do you make of the purpose of the prison sequence?
1: Well, it's atmosphere for the for one thing. And secondly, you know, one of the staples of the gangster genre is showing the protagonist at some point getting thrown in the in the joint and having to do hard time and how crummy it is. And so. The, the sequence in The God in, in Goodfellas really flips the script on that. And it comes directly from Hill's book, this whole idea. And it also speaks to the, uh, what's the Monty Python line? Well, the, the corruption inherent in the system. Because these guys, in the book it's even more outlandish. These guys aren't even in the prison in the book. They're on a, like right. a, they're in a kind of holiday inn type of dorm outside of the prison walls, which, you know, maybe they thought would have been too outlandish, but they also needed him to be inside to be doing the drug dealing and so on. So, um, you know, but there is, it's interesting because you feel like, you know, Scorsese has often been quoted as saying uh, he's not interested in plot, but he's interested in story. And it's certainly true that Goodfellas does not have a plot that you, you know, where, where you start off with right. an aim and the hero achieves the aim or is thwarted in the aim. And then, you know, wh- whatever Mamet would say about, you know, dramatic yes. storytelling does yes. not, this is not adhered to in, in Goodfellas script at all because it is drawn from life. But also um, the script does not ignore dramatic or narrative conventions as much as people might presume it does. I mean, there are these dovetails that are very ingeniously woven into the script, such as when uh, when Henry and Tommy are committing arson at the Bamboo Lounge and Tommy brings yes. up the idea of a double date. And this leads the way to Henry's meeting Karen. These are kind of seeded throughout the film. They're not in the book. In the book, things happen more So then in the movie, as they happen in real life, things just happen. There's no, you know.
0: Yes. Well, uh, I was going to ask you this question. What do you make of Scorsese as a writer? Meaning the because to me, the tone of the Pileggi books, both both Wise Guys and Casino. I read Wise Guys as soon as it came out way before there was a movie. I read Wise Guys and was fascinated by it. But I felt like it was this very sort of conversational, very um, it 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 it, it is not really a page turner in the way the movie is. Um, the tone feels very different to me. Um, uh, and is it, a writing or a directing thing? Like, what do you think Scorsese's role is when he's listed as a writer on one of his movies? How does that different from when he's just listed as the director?
1: Well, there's a, there's a two pronged, uh, answer to this question. Let me talk about wise guys, the book first. I think that Palegi is a very underrated writer, uh, and in part I think he's underrated because he is so kind of meticulous and sober. Um, he he doesn't he doesn't make presumptions. He doesn't uh, make up stuff for the sake of a snazzy phrase. And yet, at the same time, when you read Wise Guy, you are always drawn into the different voices of the book. The main voice is Henry Hill, but he does have Karen in there. He does have Henry's girlfriend. And they all have their own individual voices that are really well drawn. And they're well drawn in a way that you don't get from just transcribing. And so he's subtle, he's nuanced. But again, his um, his feeling was when he found Henry Hill was that the guy was a goldmine, because most gangsters that he knew, gangsters that he talked to, and he had talked to a lot of them over a period dating back pretty much to his being a kid before he was even a writer, uh, are kind of taciturn, don't have great memories, and if they do have great memories, they're not interested in sharing their memories with you. So um, you know, to find Henry Hill, who had this amazing memory, at least at the time before alcohol put worms in his brain um yes you know henry hill was a gold mine you you as a reporter as a writer you dream of meeting a henry hill i know a guy in my neighborhood who you know i used to be a uh, hotel union organizer in new york in the 1970s 1980s and you know if i had his permission and a tape recorder i could be studs turkle with this guy you know but uh, you know but he's a friend i'm not going to do that to him uh, he has a sandwich named after him at Esposito's. That's the kind of person awesome. he is. So, awesome. um, but so Henry Hill is is a gift to any journalist, and so Nick knew that when he when he met him, and you know he kind of worked that through. Wise guy, I think. At the time of the film, Scorsese had not had his own name on a script in some time. He's not often credited as a co-writer, even though he was. For example, the co-writer of the revised script for Raging Bull, uh, Robert De Niro and Scorsese took Paul Schrader's script for Raging Bull, went to a Caribbean island and, and rewrote that in about four weeks. And uh, the script is still credited to Paul Schrader. As a writer and a member of the Writers yes. Guild, you understand how these things often work.
0: Well, I'm sure Scorsese didn't didn't, uh, um, or I imagine he didn't apply to get credit on, on, on that one. But... What do you think his role is as a writer? How much writing is he doing?
1: Well, I'll tell you, he wanted very much, he wanted another writing credit on one of his films. And he made that clear to Nick Pelleggi that he wanted to co-write the screenplay with Nick. And for Nick, that was fine because Nick had not, I think, written a script before. He was with Nora Ephron, who had written many scripts before. But this is going to be Nick's project. So uh, I think the dynamic was as it usually is when a director and a screenwriter or a director and a book writer are together in the same room, which is that Pelleggi sat in front of the typewriter. And um, what they did first was outline how they wanted to break the book down. And they both told me they had a really uh, serendipitous kind of uh, meeting of the minds in that their uh, ideas of what to keep and what to cut were exactly the same right off the bat. So they had uh, a a good idea of how they wanted the film to be structured right off the bat. And then it was Scorsese uh, adding, um, looking at the book, going through the book, adding flavor. There are some scenes in the script where the dialogue is kind of verbatim from the book. Certainly a lot of the uh, voiceover voiceover is, is verbatim from the book. But, you know, um, Scorsese's always thinking during, ev- once, he's, once he's committed to a project, he's always thinking about what he's going to do. You know, Barbara Dufina discusses being on location in Morocco or um, wherever in the Middle East they sh- were shooting Last Temptation of Christ. And that was where Scorsese got the idea of um, using the Sid Vicious My Way. For the, for the outro, and so they already knew they wanted that and started negotiating for the rights to that even then. Uh, that was some of the prep work that Barbara Dufina did. Um, so so he's always thinking about the dynamics of the scene. He's always thinking about the music. There's a funny anecdote where Pelleggi is typing the scene where um, Jimmy is trying to decide whether or not he's going to kill Mori, and Scorsese says to Pelleggi, put in the margin, put the word cream in the margin, and Pelleggi, the inveterate Sinatra and Bennett fan has no idea what he's talking about. And he means cream, the band. Yes. He means means sunshine of your love as became clear. Yeah. Became clear to Pelleggi later. So, you know, one of the things that Scorsese invariably does as a filmmaker, and I think it's the most important thing a filmmaker can do is that um, he always gets life on the screen uh there was that uh, special about the new york bands in the 80s called put blood in the music you know scorsese always puts blood in his films and i don't just mean the the gore uh, in the violence there's always and i think all the best filmmakers do that it's not a matter of realism when i say put life on the screen i don't mean put reality on the screen because often it's not reality at all but just Make the, make the image breathe, give it, give it a vividness. So he's always thinking, even when he's in a stage of writing, he's always thinking about how he's going to get the image to, 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 to have some blood in it, to, to really give uh, a reflection of life and, and of being. And so that was his aim, I think. And And they worked very hard on the script, and they were very proud of the script that they had. Uh, and that was the script that Thelma, pa- Thelma Schoonmacher read to her husband, Michael Powell. And it was a script he fell in love with despite uh, not being a fan of the gangster film. Michael Powell being yes, a great British a great British him. filmmaker who was a mentor and friend to Scorsese in his last years. Um, and it was because of Michael Powell that eventually Scorsese, who had the project kicking around so long he became sick of it. It was when Thelma reminded him of Michael Powell's devotion to the project that he found the inspiration to uh, to really uh, make it as best he could and, and carry on with it, but yeah, I think as as a writer, you know, he's just always thinking about the image, right. you know. And then they take the script and they take they show the actors, and the actors have their say; they have their way with it to a certain extent.
0: Well, let's. Let's talk a bit about where where we find you here. You know, I'm 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 so just thrilled for you, dude, that that you have this book coming out right now uh about this movie that people care so deeply about. And you know, you're you you've you've had a career in 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 an industry that's di- been dying basically since you were in one of the great jobs in it. <laughs> yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. When I and, didn't know how good I had it.
0: Right. Well, no, of course. I mean, I remember when you were working for a magazine, you know, as the main, sort of like the most important writer for that magazine in New York. And there was like a staff of people. I would come visit you at your office, and it was like a real office with like uh, assistants and and interns and um, uh, uh, journalists that you were training. And it was just, um, uh, Almost feels like the way you would depict journalism in a film, and it would be a lie, a romantic version.
1: of I, it. I, I um, went to cannes. I stayed at the Hotel Martinez for a week, which cost twelve thousand dollars, and I didn't pay for anything
0: <laughs> right. and 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 so but and so, and it seemed as though those jobs were a sinecure. like for there were people who were in those jobs, uh, if you got one of them, for a very long time. And I'm kind of think, you know, and, and yet the bottom fell out. Those magazines all closed. Every, all those jobs, the jobs that paid um, a, a more than decent wage as, a, let's say, a film reviewer became internet recappers and people making a tenth of what you were making. And, and I, I, I want to talk about your survival, man. I want to talk about your, for a few the last minutes we have here, a bit about your own, because I think it's inspiring, your own personal survival on, on, on both a career and personal level. So, you know, do, do you want to talk about how you were able to arrive at this place of getting to, 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 write
1: this no, book? It's, and about- uh, it's, it's important that I do, I think, you know, um, I've known you for, for more than 20 years and, and you've been, you and David Levine, your partner and uh, people you've introduced me to who I've become friends with have been great and inspiring friends and uh, have helped me out a lot over the years. I often refer to you and David as, um, you know, the kind of friends you can call from when you're in jail, because I did that. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, that was cleared up and it was fine. And it's a whole other story that, uh, you know, might might go into a novel. Um <laughs> Yeah, that's for the memoir. That oh, that story's for the memoir. Yeah, your or memoir. a novel or something, or or never to be told. Who knows? Um, but you know, I when I say I didn't know how good I had it at premiere, I'm, I'm I'm really not kidding. Not just because of the prestige and the you know ostensible at the time security of the job, but because of the way I was protected, almost coddled to a certain extent, because I was valued there and I was you know I was kind of indulged by my uh, bosses, uh, because, you know, to some extent, because you're, a, you know, you're, they romanticized me as much as I romanticized myself. And, you know, I got away with a lot of, you know, behavior that uh, is not really great. And, uh, you know, I, I was the, you know, hard drinking, hard smoking, um, you know, arrogant, um, film critic dude. And, um, you know, I made it work for me and I made it work for me. Well, wait, hold on. You made it work for you professionally, yeah. and but you didn't make it work for you personally. No, and really, you know, eventually the chickens came home to roost. And this, and the other thing also is that I don't have a background that, that you'd necessarily expect to find me in this job. I, I, I am from a working class background. I, I dropped out of college. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I kind of right. had a fight uh, for what I got. And I was fortunate to, to encounter Robert Criscow early in my career. And he was a guy who really believed in me and, and gave me a, a, a rung up uh also Jim Meggs uh who hired me at video review years before hiring right. me at premiere and the reason Jim Meggs hired me at video review was cuz I'd been in the voice for Robert Crisco so having people like that in your corner was was really great but i was able to elevate myself into this situation but i was a bad you know i was a, I was a very personally irresponsible person and i was a drunk um and uh, you know, I, I was always kind of looking, you know, I, I, myself like, like Henry Hill was always kind of looking for an angle or, or looking for people to kind of like rescue me, you know? Um, yes. I remember you remember when we went to see the wallflowers when they were playing at the garden with
0: yeah. Opening for the who, for the right? who
1: and w- we yeah. walked out on the who, which is like something you can say to people and they just look at you like their jaw drops. Um, Well, John Entwitzel was not there. No, he was not. Uh, So what did we really walk out Exactly. But we were talking about two things, and they're both things that are very germane to my life now, uh, although they might not have seemed so at the time. We were talking about writing and how neither of us could write a novel um, because we couldn't keep it all in our heads at once. And we could do short stories, but the whole idea of a novel... Being this giant entity that you could actually do escaped us. And we both talked about how, not in an aggressive way, but we both talked about how we both envied David Levine, your your writing partner. And we talked about it. uh, We talked about that inability to hold the entire idea of a novel in our head, Uh, in contrast to your writing partner, David, who had written a couple of novels by this time, very good novels. And we admired his ability to do so when we were flummoxed. By our inability to do so, and then at the time, I I was having, I was still pulling myself out of a lot of shit with the IRS, and uh, you know, I was saying that I borrowed money from a a friend, and uh, that he was, you know, I I wasn't able to pay it back quickly enough, and I was, you know, in a kind of a quandary with him that I was alienated from him, and you asked me how much money, and I said three thousand dollars, and a part of me was thinking yeah, maybe Brian will lend me the money. And instead you said, huh. that's a lot of money. And that was when the conversation ended. Um, and huh. you were right to say that, obviously. Uh, you were absolutely right to say that. I learned a lot uh, <laughs> in the years subsequent to that, probably more than I wanted to. And you know, eventually I, I became a sober person. I stopped drinking. I straightened out my finances. I straightened out my marriage. I straightened out my life. And a couple of years into being sober, I wrote a novel. I actually had it yes. in my head. And it's a novel that a lot of people like and no one will publish because it's just too disgusting. Um, this, you know, uh, <laughs> Right. But you were
0: able to sort of um, marshal your resource. It's funny, you know, because I, I'm sure we went to that concert before I wrote Solitary. Man. Right. And and for me, writing Solitary Man was the 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 being able to prove to myself that I could do this long form thing alone if I had to do it. And it was I got I got an incredible amount of personal freedom
1: from doing that.
0: It was a validation of myself long before we got to make the movie. Right. Well, we
1: both, you know, found ways to do these things that we really wanted to do. But for me, sobriety became key and it still is key. Uh, And so, um, you know. That's a the other thing I found out in sobriety was the you know when you're a drunk and you get sober and your life improves incrementally or almost immediately and then incrementally you you become you know you get this evangelical fervor you know and so many people who do that want to just especially if they're writers obviously want to sit down and write their first you know their their, their long form drunkalogue I'm going to write my memoir of being a drinker and right. I started writing that. Uh, it was very pretentiously titled In the Dark, get it? Because I was a film critic. Somebody stopped me and I was stopped because I showed it to a friend of mine who was a literary agent and he asked me a very simple, direct and kind of damning at the time question, which was, why are you doing this? Who is this for? What is your intention? And I realized that whatever my intention was, it wasn't good enough to justify my doing that book at that time. And it made me look for other books to write. And um, one of the nice things about the Goodfellas book is that it's a book that I not only wanted to write, but it's a book that I felt that I could write. Um, that's a that's a huge thing.
0: Well, because the book has the, the book, the book um, successfully transfers your enthusiasm, knowledge and love for the movie, for films in general, for these kinds of stories to the reader through through the film. And so you're correct. You you not only could write it, you had to write it because you've reanimated the film for us, which is a no easy thing to do with a, for a film that I've seen as many
1: times as I've seen good films. Yeah. It's a movie that's a part of me. You know, it's a part of my career as a journalist because uh, as I talk about in the prologue, uh, my first interview with Scorsese, he was editing the film and he told me about it and I was intrigued and I couldn't wait to see it. And I saw it Uh, a little less than a year later, uh, while I was at the same job around the corner from my office. So, uh, in a way, you know, you feel like the, the dominoes fall a certain way and you're doing what it seems, sounds pompous that you're doing what you were meant to do, but there's a rightness to doing this project that, um, I haven't experienced before.
0: That, That makes complete sense to me as a, as a last thing, Glenn, um, When the bottom fell out of journalism and then you got sober and got ready to sort of attack it, how did you deal with the sort of paralyzing fear of paying the rent, living your life and then cobbling together? Because now, you know, you write for The New York Times, you've written two books or three books in the last bunch of years. Like, how did that how did you think through this challenge without giving up?
1: I think it was something that was taught to me in sobriety, which is that you just kind of do the next right thing, which is a cliche, obviously, but you do the next right thing, which can mean try to do the next right thing in your self-interest. You know, the point is in a crisis to just, well, just do something, you know, even if even if it turns out to be a mental or academic exercise, just do something Remember, the first year I was sober, I was working as a consultant for this really ridiculous scheme called uh, U-Star, which was going to be karaoke for movies. It was a whole um, thing that was sold. You got a green screen, you got a video cam, and you'd act in parts of famous movies. And I was the consultant who would pick out scenes for people to do. The guy who was running it, one of the guys who was running it was a guy named Fred Rosen. He was the founder of Ticketmaster. uh, And as you can imagine, a very well-liked person. He was the guy who tried to pitch me on the idea for Oceans 14. I said, there's there's not going to be another Oceans film. They don't want to do it. And also, Bernie Mac is dead. He says, that's exactly it. Bernie Mac is dead. And they go and find his killer. I'm like, Fred, calm down. Anyway, I was working for him. And I was working for another guy. And they were paying me a consultant's fee every month. And I kind of worked really hard for them. And it turned out to be one of the worst ideas ever thought by anyone nobody wanted to do karaoke for movies but one month uh some new guy came in and he told me uh oh your invoice for this month i'm not paying it and um the guy who was supposed to be my protector in that gig was off in the virgin islands and unreachable so essentially i had you know my nut money taken out of my pocket and i was like Ugh. what the fuck am i gonna do I, there was nothing you know and I took a job doing deck demo. I I, I I took a job with some other sober guys, and we went on this uh, rooftop in Fort Greene and took about took apart all these roof decks that were in violation of city code. But I'm like, I'll do it because there's nothing else. There's literally nothing else. And you know, yeah. I got I got paid. It was money. It wasn't enough money, but it was some money. And I wrote a little bit about it uh, on my blog. And, you know, I was fortunate, you know, and I remain fortunate that I'm married and my wife helped out a bit. And as long as we could just make the effort and do some things and keep our heads above water until something viable came along, which it did, that's, that's it. The, you know, falling into despair, going out and getting wasted, none of that's going to help. The point is to put one foot in front of the other. And all the time, you know, over the past 10 years, 10 and a half years now, um, that's kind of been my uh, motto. You know, it's funny because, um, and this is to a certain extent talking out of school, but, you know, uh, a lot of sober people I know and uh, the, the recovery movement has moved over to Zoom meetings and things like that. So it's all virtual, but they're kind of going nuts without human contact. Uh, without direct human of contact, course. and it's this—it's—it's it's, it's upsetting to see, but you know what I try and say is, you know, come on, this is really where one day at a time kind of kicks in. You know, um, it's not always going to yes. be this way, and if you can just stand it for these twenty-four hours and just talk about it, you'll be better. And for me, that's been helpful in in the pandemic, but that's um, that's a true thing. And of course, you know, it was uh, was seeing a scene in Shutter Island that kind of gave me my white light moment. I know a lot of people don't like that movie, but uh, you never know where it's going to come from.
0: Sure. Well, uh, you never know what is going where it's going to come from. But if it comes from Glenn Kenny and it's the written word, it's, it's of quality. And this new book, Made Men. Uh, the making of Goodfellas is really uh, essential reading if you are somebody who listens to this podcast or watches Billions, because uh, Goodfellas, it is really um, it, it is really a, a crucial piece of what uh, Dave and I uh, Dave and I do. Glenn Kenny, thanks so much, my friend, for being. Brian, here. Brian, as
1: always, we're ending our conversation, and we could go on for another three hours, but we'll. I hope very much to see you in person soon my friend
0: and you too pal everybody you can find glenn he's a great tweeter uh on twitter you can find me at brian compliment you can email me at the moment bk at gmail.com and we will see you next time